right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Science in Between. That's Ollie. That's Scott. Yeah, I'm and doing my I'm doing my NPR voice. How you doing are you? I, that's um, nice. Yeah. I don't have I don't think I have an NPR voice. Yeah, I have just, a just dial it back a little bit. Just try it. Should I do it like this? Yeah, there is you that, go. Is it? Pretend like you're whispering. I, I, but, but I don't talk a little louder than that. I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen those sketches on SNL where they do that? Oh my god! No. So so good. Um, is this yeah. is this your Terry Gross voice? Is that what it's doing? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a spoof on Terry Terry Gross. We can put it in the show notes or something. But it's uh, yeah. It was Alec Baldwin coming on the show, and um, it was good. I think they did a couple of them, but that's the one I remember um, because he his name was. Um, well, no, we're not. We're, we're not going to go down that yeah, road. Yeah. We got uh, yeah, we got I, stuff to do. We got important work. Ollie. We have we important, important work, work to, do. to do. Yes, we do. So I think I'll set this up because yep. this is sort of like my, you know, my idea based on. I've been. I'm a big fan of revisionist history, which is the podcast from Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, this season, this is season three, I think, of revisionist history is all focused on experiments. Yes. And and so the first half of the season was about like experiments people would want to do if they could do um, any experiment, like if they could remove any of the, you know, uh, guidelines, any sort of restrictions, even like possibilities, like, is it right. like, imp- like, is it like physically possible to do this experiment? Mm-hmm. What would you want to do? And so they, you know, the first four or five episodes were all around that. And I, I was really wondering where the, it was going. And I think this season is really all about this le- this the the episode with the the starvation experiment. I yeah. think that's what it is. So if you're not familiar with this, so that that was all set up for you know, the second half of the season, which started with the starvation experiment. And the starvation experiment is an uh, experiment done by Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota um, during World War II. And mm-hmm. what happened is they recruited 36 guys, 36 men, all in their 20s, to come and um, be starved for a period of a year. So mm-hmm. what had happened was they brought them in and for three months, they got them to their optimum weight. And then at that point, they just reduced calories more and more until eventually they, you know, were n- near death. And, and at that point, I mean, the research was really about like how, what are the effects on the body? What are the effects on, they've collected all this data mm-hmm. on this. And then um, what are the best ways to bring a person back from that near-death experience. Um, And these were all volunteers. They were all volunteers who came forward because they were all conscientious objectors to the war. Mm -hmm. So these are people who, because mostly from religious backgrounds, um, had chose not to um, participate or weren't weren't willing to participate. in, in the war efforts and they were like, okay. And, and they were all, you know, involved in some way in the peace efforts. Like I think one was in, you know, working at like a, a social work facility. Another one was working in another, and they had were recruited to, and they all volunteered as this is the way that they wanted to contribute to the wartime efforts. Um, mm-hmm. And then the, um, the story is, is pretty, um, pretty compelling because they, collected a lot of oral histories from these folks and 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 these these men did not have an easy go of it um you know obviously because they, I mean, they were starved right. but just the the um not only short-term physical impacts but also long-term 
physical and emotional impacts. Um, one of the uh, more recent episodes uh, talked to the family of one of the men who w- was just had a lifelong eating disorder because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his weight would fluctuate, but you know, this is the, that's the setup of yeah. this um, because that got me thinking about uh, educational research and the stuff um, that we do in education as research. And, and we don't want to really, I think we want to talk a little bit about the ethics piece of it, like what, what ethically we can do, but we don't want to get into the IRB stuff very much. Mm-hmm. Like, cause I, I think, don't think we need to at all really. Right. Well, I think one of the things, I think one of the things with it is that institutions set up their own guidelines based on the law. Right. right. And so based on federal law, yeah. based on federal law. And so um, what might be approved at, at Penn state may or may not be approved at another institution because yeah. their their interpretation of the law may be different. Mm-hmm. And so even though that's not, you know, it's not the way it should work. Um, no. It is. And there are statewide differences. So if you're in mm-hmm. different states, you may be able to get different kinds of research approved based on state laws. So yeah, there's, there's complications to it, but yeah, not, and not it, that interesting to what we're talking about. Right. And also you and I are not lawyers and we don't want to provide legal advice to anybody to say, hey, no, you know, not. if you f- frame it this way, because no, no, that's just not our, 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 our jam. But I think that what was more interesting to me was the the fact that the, the episode after they I- introduced so the, the first episode is uh, was this the starvation experiment. That's the name mm-hmm. of the episode. Uh, actually, it was the Department of Physiological Hygiene was actually yeah. the name of the episode. Yeah. The one after that was called The Rise of the Guinea Pigs. And and they really focused in on the folks, the guys who participated, the guys who volunteered. And these 36 men came forward. They were willing to do this. They knew the risks. And yet, you know, and some of them. They um, actually initiated the study, right? Like the the, right, conscientious, right. the group of conscientious objectors were actually the ones that said, this is a study that needs to be done because there are going to be people starving all over Europe after this war. Right. And we need to know how to best help them and support them. Yeah. Some um, of the men were the ones who actually came up. You know, history has shown it a different way that it was an Ansel Keys thing. But then yeah. you find out in that episode that these were the men. And they also frame it from the standpoint of, um, you know, more recent COVID work where like mm-hmm. 27,000 people came forward to be infected with COVID because they wanted to study the impacts of COVID on, on people. Yeah. Right. And, and so people were like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll be infected with COVID. Yeah. And even though they knew the risks. And so the question is uh, from that is like, you know, people are willing to participate sometimes more so than um, maybe some of the IRB or ethical guidelines would allow right and so i don't i don't know this is a free-flowing you know yeah i mean the 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 thing there right is really about um understanding that the core question is what does it mean for a participant to understand the risks and benefits of the thing that they're participating in and bioethicists and they interviewed a bunch of them on this show um one of their points is, well, it's not always, even if the people who are participating think they know the risks and the, and the rewards, they may either not really, or they may be telling themselves a different story than they're being told, um, even though what they're being told is true. Uh, so, so there is this funny thing that ethicists sort of say, well, you know, there are things that we shouldn't do where, you know, the point that, that the episodes that Gladwell has is that 
These people knew full well what they were doing. They they are proud that they did it now, decades later, or you know, half a half a century later. And um, and they're, you know, so even though ethicists wonder whether it was an ethical study, the people who participated certainly see it as something that they were happy to have done and glad that they contributed to reducing the suffering of lots of people by suffering themselves. Well, I think we need to point out that there's, there's a long history of medical research done in America and in other countries that are, that's just like astoundingly bad. Like there was stuff going on at that time, right? Right. Astoundingly amoral, Im- right. immoral, the, not the Tuskegee amoral. experiments. Yeah. There, the Tuskegee there were, is an easy one, right? Yeah. You know, well, and yeah, I mean, all the, of the, all of the stuff that happened under the, the Nazis in Germany and all sure. there's lots of, yeah. Which is why IRB and, and systematic protection of, of research subjects exists as a thing is because there has been, you know, Henrietta Lacks is such a famous story oh, absolutely. about like the abuse of, of the medical system. So, um, yeah, right. So we, we are not advocating in any way, shape or form that researchers should be able to do whatever they want and that people, um, you know, that we should trust the educational right. tr- or research. Right. Yeah. They shouldn't just like inherently trust right. anyone, but I, but I, I guess for me, I, I wonder, you know, how do we encourage participation or how do we reframe participation in such a way that um, people view, you know, okay, I'm willing to do educational research or participate in educational research. And because there's, I mean, there's a lot less risk for a lot of like, especially from the points of view that you and I have, Mm -hmm. I look at like, you know, you know, impacts of curriculum or what's the impacts of, you know, teaching strategies. Those are pretty low risk things. I mean, yeah. in terms, it's, it's not like going to give someone long-term eating disorders or help um, sure. in, in the, in the, um, the starvation experiment, one of the people, you know, cut off some fingers. Um, and so, yeah. and they were eating wood and, and that, I mean, those aren't the, that is not going to fall within the, um, the domain of our work, right? No. However, we have, you know, parents who are un, un I would say they're resistant or they're skeptical of anything that is outside of the norm. Like I I'll give you a for instance, a few years ago I was trying to work with some um some teachers at a local school district to to start doing some flipped classroom stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And the principal, now it wasn't even research. We weren't even doing any research on this. I was just, it was more from a standpoint of, you know, helping the teachers, you know, really investigate their own pedagogy and try different things. Um, and one of the things that the, the principal wanted to do was in, in incorporate more flipped classrooms so the teachers would have more time to work with um, the students one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, so the principal asked me and I had some, some of my students who were working with the teachers only from a, like a technical standpoint, like some of mm-hmm. my college students were working with the teachers there to help, you know, create less uh, videos and stuff that were tailored to the curriculum that they were using in the school. And the, um, principal said, you know what, why don't we do a meeting with the parents in these grade levels? And, and some of the parents were really angry that we were doing this mm-hmm. and viewing it from like, we were. You know, that their students, their kids, yeah. and these were like fourth and fifth grade kids were being experimented on and that yeah. they were that like this was that they were guinea pigs yeah. and that um, and they were like, yeah, like we had to diffuse some really angry parents over this because they were just like, yeah, this is not right. And 
and that's a pretty low level risk right there. I would say, you know, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think this is the the complication that I think educational research has such a struggle with is it's 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 a different kind of risk. Like certainly none of those kids are going to die or develop cancer or have serious mental illness as a result of the, you know, flip classroom intervention, right? Like that's right. not a thing that's going to happen. But I think all parents um, are, uh, for better or worse, are really concerned about their kids' performance in school because they justifiably link it to the ability of those kids to succeed after school. And so um, I think there is there is risk there. And I think it, it but it is it, it does um, that, you know, we were talking about apprenticeship of observation, that notion that I know like school did right by me. And I'm not sure everybody even thinks that, but school right. did right by me. I don't want to change it for my kid because I don't want to take the chance that whatever change you're going to make is going to make it worse for my kid. And then now my kid has been damaged or, or, their their opportunities have been reduced by your little experiment to do a flip classroom thing. Yeah, I, I yeah, I guess the thing I struggle with is that we we have parents who, and I'm a parent. You're a parent um, who you will like make. To be a parent? <laughs> no, that's nice. Thank you. You're on, you're on a roll today because you know. Yeah, well, uh, I, yeah, I well, stopped myself before, so you just right. ignore me when I do these kind of behaviors. Well, it was even pre show, right? Even pre. -show. Yeah. Pre-show, there was some some entertainment there too um, that all of you missed, but I did not. No. Um, but I, I think that as as parents, there's sometimes that parents will do things that have very little research background and say, you know what, I'm going to do sure. this, and they're willing to you know really put their kids into skeptical, non-research based interventions. Sure. And and then whenever, you know, we want to do something that is, you know, maybe helps to inform research or is research-based, they're like, no, hold on. And it's, sometimes it's the same parents. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, and and um in many respects, this brings it brings it all back to um, you know, stuff that we talk about all the time, which is how do people learn to evaluate evidence and make decisions about right. what, what quote unquote truth is, what, what the model is. And, um, and I think, you know, <clears throat> another thing that we talk about that I think this is connected to is, is the, the idea of what it means to learn something. And yeah. so that can be very difficult because, you know, you're having these conversations with parents or even teachers, right. Where they're saying, well, uh, this this all sounds really good, and I'm sure my kids would love it. But the problem is that it's it seems like it's going to go really slowly, and that and that you're not going to cover as much stuff. And like this is a classic thing that we hear right about ambitious science teaching or or, or pedagogies like that, which is like, oh yeah, I mean, it sounds like it'll be really engaging, and the kids will like it. But I'm afraid that we're not going to get to the stuff they need to get to, and they're not going to do well in the test. And all of that is bound up no, in a notion of what it means to learn and and what it means to teach um, that are implicit and and not. Um, but th those things also lead to some parents not wanting their kids to engage in certain kind of pedagogies and, and teachers not wanting to engage in those kind of pedagogies because they say, 
you know, where's the evidence? This, this is the thing that I, I find like astonishing when I'm working with teachers and we're talking about like changing pedagogy and they're like, well, I, until you have some evidence that it either doesn't impact or it improves test scores, like we got to stick with what works. <laughs> it's like, wow. But there's the assumption that that works, right? Yeah, there's exactly, the assumption that works exactly. because, you know, this mass delivery of, of lecture-based instruction is, I mean, it's still held as the gold standard, even though the evidence is, is pretty, I mean, it's, it's not compelling. No. Yeah. You know? But it is compelling on the assessments that we currently have, right? And right. and and within the context of how we currently compare both school districts and and uh, you know uh, individual students, right? I mean, this gets this uh, gets the idea of assessment again. But I, right. I, you know, and I, I've taken us down into some of our themes. But let's maybe want to pop back up to. The thing that you're bringing up, which I think is really interesting, like how do we think about schools thinking about schools in ways that allow for more innovation um, that can be then context for research for better understanding how to improve schools? Because right now we don't we don't do very much of that. Right. Like we have charter schools, but charter schools are not intentional um, sort of research context. Right. They're just like random um, attempts at different modes of teaching. So um, what if, so I think one of the things that, and this goes back to, you know, historically, a lot of colleges of education had laboratory schools. Yeah. Some and still do. Some, I mean, well, there's, there's one on campus here that it's a building that used to be a laboratory school. Mm-hmm. I say here, cause I am on campus right now. Um and it, there, it's still because it's like carved into the stone, right? Sure. The, the laboratory school, but mm-hmm. it's now just for classrooms for you know I think the psych department or the English department or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the idea was that, and I actually got my first teaching you know experiences was in where it was in a laboratory school that the University of Pittsburgh ran. Yeah. The University of Pittsburgh had a laboratory school that was called the Falk School that was you know it was. It was university affiliated. I think all of the folks who work there were on faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, quote unquote, but they were all somehow partnered in some sort of research capacity that they were doing some sort of research with the students there. But the parents who sent their kids there knew that this was a research facility. Now, it wasn't like there were like, you know, test tubes and like, you know, blood big sampling and blood electrodes sampling. attached to kids' heads while they were in Gamma class. radiation. You know, this is where <laughs> all of the superheroes and all the supervillains were created right there at the laboratory. At the pit lab school. You heard it here first. <laughs> this is where the Hulk was born. <laughs> the Hulk was there and and all of the other good guys and guys, bad Sp- Spider-Man got bit by the radioactive yeah. spider all yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, this was this was okay. I'm just a comic book aside that just kind of like I think is, uh, I think important right here. I'm just gonna drop this. I'm pretty sure it's not important, but carry on. It, it's not that uh, in Marvel in the Marvel world, every bad guy is just the good guy turned on its head. So every like. So if there's like Captain America, their main is like a super soldier and his main, you know, villain is the Red Skull and the Red Skull is also. So every single, 
you know, good guy, bad guy, villain, superhero. Okay. They're those combinations. There you go. They okay. all came from the pit lab school. There you go. So yeah. there's something for you to hopefully not ever think about again. I know you just heard that and you can tuck it away as a little fact. But I think that's why they're here. They're here for those asides. Yeah. No, for those asides. <laughs> those rabbit holes. Um, but yeah. but I that but I think that maybe that's what we need to do is the return of the lab schools that yeah. every, you know, every school that you know prepares teachers, um, and there's lots of them, yeah. needs to have on its campus or nearby its campus a laboratory school. And then what that would get at is the participant perspective, right? Because a parent would say, okay, I know that if I'm going to send my kid here, this is a, a place where innovation happens, where innovation is studied, mm-hmm. and I'm okay with that, right? Because we really don't have that opportunity right now as, you know, as a parent or as, you know, a, a, a community to be able to say, okay, where, like, if I wanted my kid to go someplace, my kids, if I wanted my kids to go someplace and experience, you know, pedagogy that is, you know, maybe more evidence-based or maybe, you know, we're developing the evidence base to support that. Like ultimately, you know, I mean, it's not going to, it's not going to do worse, right? I mean, no, it's, it's not going to do worse, but I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, we could, we can make the comparison to charter schools because, because the, the rhetoric, especially around charter schools was, that was the point is if we, if we open up the public schools to schools that have less constraint on them and allow choice opt-in sorts of things, then you would get innovation and you would, you would, it would allow for opportunities to better understand how schools work, what are successful models, what are not successful models. Um, And I think, you know, the, the, the evidence for that is very mixed, right? That the, right. the distribution of performance of charter schools is about the same as the distribution of public schools. And, and I don't know of any systematic attempt to try to understand, are there patterns in those successful schools and charters that can give us information about how to better think about public schools? Um, but maybe that research is out there and I'm just not familiar with it. It's possible. Well, but the other thing is, I think that, I would say since I've I've been at you know Millersville for 15 years and I there's been no I can't I think of one in my memory here um no real partnership with us or even efforts at a partnership to form a charter school to like you know yeah. help create one to work within there um and I mean we're the we're the folks or some of the folks who were involved in and doing this and studying this and, and mm-hmm. helping pro- propel, you know, innovation and, and, and pedagogy and strategies and, you know, curriculum and all that. And, and yeah, I just, not that it's not happening. I mean, this research yeah. is happening, but it's not happening at the, at the pace or, you know, scope that I think we need. Sure. But I think, you know, I think we all, we, we understand like there are real challenges to doing educational research, right? I mean, one of the most obvious that we, I think we talk about, um, but maybe not is, is just this idea of controlling variables, right? So, so how do you make a comparison between educational contexts? I mean, it's difficult, bordering on impossible to do that in, at, at individual, even individual classes, my third period, my fifth period, 
much less my third period and your third period, right? And then, yeah. and then the, you know, like the only way you can really do these kinds of comparisons is when you get really large ends. And there's people who do that research, but the problem is that the findings are very superficial because you're you're generalizing across massive numbers of kids and teachers, and so the things that you can say are relatively general, which is to say not super helpful um, about innovation in classroom teaching. So it is it is a complicated thing. It is you know it gets compared to medical science a lot, but it's very different. Right. The things that the medical science measures um, don't require the cultural interpretation that that the things that we measure do. Right. Like um, when you take somebody's blood pressure, it's not it's not interpreted differently in different contexts and measures differently in different contexts and doesn't require that that level of cultural filter. And so there are, you know, doing educational research is hard um, and complicated and doing it in a way, well, I mean, I guess one of the questions we could ask is, what does it mean? I was going to say, do we even, can we even make generalizable statements? But what, what does it mean to make a generalizable statement about, about learning that could be used to guide um, pedagogy? Because I think that's, but I think, but I think before we do that, I think we need to like dispel this notion that the medical community it has it has it easier. I think what the medical community has done is just said, okay, because they've basically ignored giant populations of of people when they do their research, right? Yeah. So that what they've done is they've said, okay, you know what? We're just gonna for a lot of a lot of the medical research is just on men and just on like you yeah, know, but, but men of a certain because age. I know this is true, but that's not a fundamental difficulty of edu- of medical research. That is a sexist and racist history right. of the way that medical research gets done. But I don't want to mix that together with medical research is significantly clearer than education research. And I don't want to make it sound like it's not because, because that yeah, is. I don't, I, no, I don't, I don't mean to say it from the standpoint of like, we, we can't trust the, the findings. I'm not even saying I don't, that. I'm no, not even I'm, saying that. Okay. I'm, I'm not at all making that argument what right I'm just what saying i'm saying is, that is, is like it is it is messy their med- yeah. medical research is is messy is it more or less messy i don't know i mean it's hard to i mean uh, i think i think there's a whole layer to educational research that medicine doesn't have to deal with right for the most part there are exceptions to that but if i'm going to do a medical study yeah human biology is complicated if i i mean nutritional studies are are a classic and they're sort of on the border, right? Because it's like, well, how do you actually know what people are eating and what behaviors they're engaging with or in over long periods of time? That's hard, right? It's hard to track people about that stuff, but that, but that still like, if I go for a 15 minute walk that raises my heart rate by 30%, that is not open for interpretation culturally. Like, what does it mean for Ali's heart rate to go up by 30%? It, It, it doesn't matter anything about uh, Ali's view of the world, how he was raised, anything like that, right? So there is none of that level of um, culture and and language, essentially interpretation that's in there. That by comparison, right? I mean, blood pressure is blood pressure. It 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 is what it is, and we've got a systematic way of measuring it, and it and it's consistent across. Um, context and it's and it's the same we measure it the same for all people and things like that like those 
Right. Those things are true in medical research in a way that are not. Like, again, what does it mean to understand climate change? I mean, what does it mean to understand force and motion? Right. Or anything. Right. I mean, right. And how do I measure it? Like those are, those things are hundred percent not consistent. Like we can say we're going to measure it with these instruments, quote unquote instruments. Right. And they're measuring something and you can consistently measure whatever that thing is, but what you're measuring isn't really the understanding of the thing that you're measuring. It's just your interpretation of that thing. Um, and I, that's a huge difference, uh, in, and it makes our jobs much more difficult. But you had, you had thrown out a question and, yeah. and what was the question again? I mean, the question was, what does it even mean to make a generalization in education? Right. Yeah. So are there things that are quote unquote true for all students? Um, and, and if so, what, what do those things look like? Wow. Cause we talked about like responsive teaching. And it's yeah. like, well, there's a tension there, right? If if things that we do in education are true for all students, um, doesn't that on some level mean that we're not being responsive to the students that we have in our room? And I, I think that's a question that we really have to grapple with if we want to think about what good teaching really is. I think so this is uh, the influence of another podcast coming oh, into my brain. Okay. So the Adam Grant podcast recently had a person who was a neuroscientist uh, on and uh, she was promoting a book called neuroscience and you or the neuroscience of you. Okay. Um, and, and I, I'll have to look up the, the author. Um, it was a great, um, great interview. And the, the one thing that came through this is actually going back to, to Dewey and perplexity and she was talking about the power of curiosity mm. and, and what curiosity does to your brain and how it, you know, fires off all of these, you know, receptors and mm-hmm. positions you for learning. And, and, and that's something that is absolutely within our, our wheelhouse, right? That's absolutely right in the thing that we are, are, are selling and promoting in terms of, you know, this ambitious science teaching is all about creating a uh a environment in where curiosity happens mm-hmm. and and so i i think that's a thing right it, I mean, it is a thing but here here's what i'd say about that right is and this is increasingly something i i think about right because i listen to a lot of these like podcasts about psychology too right whether that's adam grant or whether that's um Oh my gosh. Uh, you are not so smart, which is a great podcast as well about this kind of stuff. There's a lot of these like hidden brain. There's a ton of these podcasts are about like how our brain works, but I want to differentiate between how our brain works and how we, we interact in spaces with other human beings, which is a very different context. So when you say, when a neuroscientist says like, this is what happens in your brain when someone's curious okay, that's fine. Like you're defining curiosity in a particular way. And then you're going and looking to see what neurons fire. Um, I don't know how much that actually tells us about the brain because it's a complicated thing. And just because neurons are lighting up doesn't really tell us all that much, except that certain parts of the brain are getting more blood at particular times. But, But the question is then as a teacher, how does that help me? Because yeah, I know I want curiosity of my kids, but all my kids 
curiosity is going to come from from different places, right? It's not yeah. it's not like and the and the reason for those differences, at least part of the reason, is the the their culture and experience as human beings, and those are all different and to some degree unique. So there's this for me. There's a line here between brain function and psychology at that level, like basic psychological function, like, you know, the uh, Daniel Kahneman's work on fast and slow systems of, of making decisions, right? Like that, I find that stuff fascinating. And I also recognize that it doesn't directly apply to how you think about teaching, right? I mean, William James talked about like, do not confuse the psychology of, or, or the science of psychology with, he described it as the art of teaching, Right. So creating a learning environment where people learn is not the same as understanding the underlying psychology. And there's lots of people who make claims that those things map easily. All these neuroscience and education people who are like, oh, if you just know the neuroscience, then boom, you're going to understand the the education. And for me, that's that is a is not a great connection. I don't see that clearly. I don't I think there's lots of things about brain function that are important to understand in education, but they don't map neatly into how do I how do I teach science? Yeah. How do I teach? Well, I think. Just a just to bring in the author. Oh, yeah. um, so it's called the science neuroscience of you, how every brain is different and how to understand yours. And the author is uh, Chantel Pratt. Okay. So, cool. yeah. And it was yeah. on featured on a uh, recent Adam Grant's uh, workplace work life podcast. Work life podcast yeah. yeah. Which is a, which is a good listen. I think um, recommend, I think it has been recommended on this show before as a joy and his, his book and yeah. all that. Yeah. Think different. Yeah. Think different, which is which is great. But I, I think so. I know you have a um, you have sort of a a stance against <laughs> <laughs> a perspective, a perspective, a point of view, a point of view that yeah. is, you know, I don't. Want, I want to make sure I frame this in a way that it, please, it, you're not going to hurt my feelings. No, but I mean, you you are very skeptical of of cognivist perspectives right and like these and and i would put that in that sort of category even though it's you know a little bit more medical than cognitive but but it's still like yeah related right i mean that that's sort of so um removed from your perspective of the way you see the world um because well, I, and I think I, it's, I, it comes down to the, the questions you're interested in right it's it comes down to like because that you understand the complexity of the classroom environment and the students we we work with, and uh, and like you said, the information that we gain from this isn't really practical or usable when we start to think about what we can actually do. And it, it we learn something, right? But mm-hmm. it's not usable information on a practical level. And and well, I, that's part of it. I mean, it's certainly part of it. Um, I think. And and I don't I don't know that I'm skeptical of cognitive points of view, but I am skeptical of in the same way that I am of neuroscience of of simple direct applications of those notions to environments where stu- people are learning, where there are multiple people involved. Because the, these tests, both the neuroscience tests and a lot of the cognitive science work has been done on individuals, right? It, it is right. individual cognition, and that's the way they define it and think about it. But the problem is, and and again, you see this in in the work in social cognition and lots of lots of areas that have emerged out of out of the cognitive side of the house. But um, 
what what I am troubled by and what I think has caused some problems is the the um, sort of direct reasoning from those things to pedagogical things. And I think that's where you get into trouble um, because it does ignore the fact that interactions between human beings, multiple human beings, whether they're in classrooms or whether you're in, at the bus stop, right? Those things are, are cultural. They're not individual cognition only. There's lots of stuff going on in those contexts that goes beyond individual cognition. And when we reduce it to individual cognition, I think we make bad choices. We, we, we misunderstand those contexts in ways that are, that are potentially bad for the people involved, right? I mean, it's, you know, like we can talk about nutrition again. It's like if we made all of our decisions based on the three macromolecules, protein, carbohydrates, and fat, and all of our, all of our food decisions were based only on those, those three things, well, that leads to all sorts of problems, right? Because we don't get the vitamins we need, and we don't get the minerals we need, and we don't get all the, the micronutrients that, are, that we have to have. So, it, so I think there are things that, you know, when, when you make generalizations about complex systems based on simple notions, you almost always are going to get a lot of stuff really wrong. Yeah. Well, it comes back to like, what's the best breakfast, right? Exactly. Right. Is yeah. it, what is it? Um, oatmeal or what was the other or, one? Uh, yeah. Or an egg. That an was egg. just uh, an like, egg. Yeah. Or I was like, I'm, I'm making egg omelet every morning or okay. oatmeal, okay. which is it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not even thrown in like toast or you right. know, bacon, which right. I, I don't have. Do that. you have orange juice with it or do you have coffee? Yeah, it's right. always I mean, coffee. Yeah, There's no right. well, we, you we don't even both. buy juice. We don't we don't we don't even buy juice. Unless we we're like buy having juice. Unless we're having cocktails <laughs> in the morning. Yeah. I'm anti-juice unless it's in a cocktail. Yeah, yeah. Like um, I like a mimosa or a paloma. I like a paloma. Yeah. That's grape that's grapefruit juice. Yeah. It, it is grapefruit juice. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it is. All right. Um, okay. So have we have we landed anywhere with this? I mean, because it's not I don't like know. we it I mean, didn't go exactly where we thought it was going to go. But no. there you go. But I think the 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 thing the big takeaway for me is that um, I think there needs to be a place for like whether it's charter schools or laboratory schools or whatever. But I don't think charter schools are are being sold. Maybe that was the original intent as a place of, Hey, we're going to do research. Maybe it's a place of doing innovate, being no. innovative, Yeah, but I don't think it's, I think maybe it's, I see charter schools as more being sold as, as a um, non public school option it's, or the non-traditional public school option. Cause I think yeah. charter schools in most, most um, at least in Pennsylvania, it's a, it's still a public school. It's just a oh, non public. Yeah. Yeah. That's so the definition of a charter, right? I mean, is that they're still public? It's well, they, just they is have... that is that you know nationwide or is that Pennsylvania? Uh, I think that's nationwide. I mean, okay. I think that the the definition of a charter school is that it is a school that is funded by public funds, but is outside of the traditional guidelines or rules of of the school now to what degree they're outside the guidelines i think that varies state to state sure but the way that they're funded is that is essentially on a per pupil process where if you and i start a charter school the ollie and scott charter school uh, which would be awesome for gifted youth i think we should yeah we should do that um yes it sounds then, very Professor X. It yeah, Professor X. Right. We'll we'll have like an uh, a, an oh, underground layer. You kind of. You kind of. I, I know. I kind of uh, got the vibe. I'd have to shave the off vibe. the beard, but yeah. Um, that but, ha Halloween costume for you. 
Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But I I think so. I I see in at least in our state, the charter schools are basically just, you know, where businesses are coming in and, you know, running public schools, public in a public private partnership, you know, and they're not places where innovation is necessarily happening, except for the fact that they're maybe doing things a little differently from a curricular standpoint, probably not that much differently than what's happening in, in a traditional public school. But I think what we need is places where, you know, parents who are on board with this type of, of work, these, because mm-hmm. I think that's where the, the stuff that I found most interesting about the revisionist history episodes were that people, there are some people, some percentage of people, the mm-hmm. 36 people who signed up for the starvation experiment or the 27,000 who came forward for the COVID research mm-hmm. who were like, okay, I, I'm okay with this. I'm okay with ha- being participating in, you know, research for the sake of research, because I think that we need to learn. We need yeah. to learn as, and that's what, that's fundamentally human. It's a fundamentally human process is that we learn and we want to p- be part of that. And yeah. um, whether it's, you know, guided by, you know, religious backgrounds or, but is guided by something else. It doesn't matter to me. I think just is a way to creating an environment for that to happen because our traditional schools, public schools are, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. No, I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's even stronger than that, right? It's almost impossible. And it's certainly, I mean, one of the things that you just briefly mentioned that we didn't even dig into is this idea of scale. Like, how do we think about you know, like my, you could argue, I, well, not, you could argue, I am doing research now in a public school with a group of teachers that are doing interesting kinds of pedagogy and actually multiple schools now. Um, but like the scale of that is quite small. Like we're talking about a couple of middle schools in, in the middle of Pennsylvania, right? Like we're not talking about massive interventions and even the things that are considered these massive interventions um, that are funded tend to be like with a school district. It's just a big one, right? Like the Seattle public schools or the Chicago public schools or something like that. And, and those are massive for educational research, but compared to the number of students that are in our educational system, they're still quite small and they're, they're bound to one sort of geographic and cultural context. So it makes it makes this work very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I would say one of the, the things for me is, you know, if you're interested in this stuff, listen to the season of revisionist history because mm-hmm. a, a lot of it is around research and research. Um, and some of it is hard to listen to because you hear, yeah. you know, um I, I think the the one episode, one episode about um goiter and how yeah. how we end up with um, you know the salt that we have, right? right. Iodized salt. Yeah. Iodized salt, salt. And th- that was research that was done in a public school that was without, you know, parental consent. And so yeah. I don't want that stuff to happen, yeah. you know, but I do want, you know, a, a an environment in which this could happen in, I don't want to say more easily, but with, you know, more support, right? Yeah. Rather than us trying to convince people who are on their heels because of things like, you know, the Tuskegee experiment or the the Milgram right. experiment or the this yeah. Keys experiment, all of these, but you know, one in which they're like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm on board, I'm on board because I know yeah. it might help my kid or my kids' kids. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I think we need to figure out ways to um, to develop contexts where we can where we can try things out in education in spaces where people are willing to have that happen yeah. um, instead of of forcing it into context. Because you know, again, arguably the work I'm doing um, and the work that those teachers are doing, like that, on some level was forced into that, like the kids in the, in those classrooms didn't choose that. They didn't say, Oh, we'd like to try this new kind of science teaching. It just happened there. Now, in fairness, the old kind of science teaching just happened to them too. Right, so, right. so there's, there's an experiment going on with kids every day. It's just, we don't think of it as an experiment. It's just the way schools work. So, um, yeah, those kids yeah, are getting experiment. We've been running that. like decades long experiment yeah. on the, on traditional pedagogy. Yeah. And turns out, yeah. Data's not mm. good. Anyway. Yeah, well, there you go. How about All some right. joys, Ollie? Well, I think you're you're up, aren't you? Am I up? Okay. You are up. All right. I'll go first this time. So um so uh, this is sort of a funny one. I'm not really a uh so I'm Ollie and I both physics background people, right? So I'm not really a biology person per se. I don't I don't like um, you know, I don't like dissecting things i don't like observing in nature and i like it's not that i'm I'm opposed to it it's just not the thing i think about but um i recently was was uh gifted a book because i mentioned something about looking at birds um that is hilarious and awesome and i think people should uh whether you're a bird person or not a bird person um so this is it's called the field guide to dumb birds of North America. Um, that and sounds it's by, awesome. <laughs> it's by Matt Cratch, who has had a blog, um, a, a bird related blog for a long time. And he's t- essentially turned that blog or parts of that blog into a book. And uh, so I, I'm trying to see if I can read a little bit here from, from one of these, because they're just so funny. Uh, Did you I'm read trying, to us uncle Scott? What I will read to you. <laughs> Um, Thanks, Uncle I'm just, Scott. I'm just trying to find one that's, that doesn't have a lot of the curse words <laughs> because, oh. because he's, um, well, one of the things he, he talks about is like the six main bird shapes. So there's basic lump shit sack floaters, weird legs and murder. So those are the, <laughs> wow. Those are, the, those are the kinds of birds in case you're wondering about shapes of birds. Um, you know, there, but you know, then he's got, uh, let's see if I can see the categories here at least, um, there, you know, he just has a, so here, here, are the, the birds. So here are the, the, the care, the, um, group, how he groups the birds. So there are some curse words here. So if you're listening with children, just be, be aware. Yeah. Um, so typical birds, backyard assholes, hummingbirds, <laughs> weirdos, and flycatchers, egoists and show-offs fuckers floats sandbirds and dork legs and murder birds wow anyway the whole thing like everything is hilarious the descriptions of the he has it is actually a a bird guide so he had he takes birds like the white-breasted nuthatch and um but he renames it the white-breasted butt nugget um, and then describes it. Uh, it's like some middle school kid writing a book about birds. It totally is. But uh, it is it is really good fun. And it it is there is actually a serious point about um, like 
observing birds and keeping track of their behavior. And he, he advocates for a bird journal and talks about how you can uh, do this. And, but, um, but it is really funny and certainly brings me joy. And, you know, I, I inflicted it on my family over dinner that when I got it, I, I read a bunch to them because they, they have to listen to me sometimes. So, um, so it's a good book. I recommend it. The field guide to dumb birds of North America by Matt Cratch. And I think he has, I think he might have other ones to different like parts of the world, but anyway, good fun. That sounds awesome. You have to check it out. Uh, so for me, um, I'd say that I'm like a, um, you know, of course I, I'm a big comic book nerd. Um, but when you start to talk about the other types of nerds, I would say I'm like, I don't know, maybe 60% a Star Wars nerd and maybe 50% a Star Trek nerd, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm, I'm, I will watch those movies and, you know, like I don't, my, my mother-in-law is a big Star Trek person. So she's like, watches all of the series and all that. Mm. And, um, and I, I, I try to do that with some of the Star Wars stuff, but some of it lands differently. And I'm like, eh, but I started watching Andor, which is the newest mm-hmm. series from um, Star Wars uh and the star wars new universe and it, it it sounds like it's a planet like andor but it actually fo- focuses on uh somebody who shows up in rogue one the movie rogue one uh cassian andor um and it talks about his um entryway into the rebellion and i'm gonna say it's like even if you're not a star wars fan this is good this is good television yeah um because what what the the cool part about it is is I mean I started trying to watch like Boba Fett and it's just kind of you have to really be in the world to like get, get yeah. that because it's like there's a whole episode that's just about hanging out with Tuscan Raiders and I'm like uh you know that's that's like deep in the Star Wars deep world. in the lore this is really about like you know what do you do when you're you face oppression. Like, that's really what this is about. Like, how do you in- engage with that? And and it's told from like the ground level, you know, everyday person perspective in the empire. Like, mm. that's the cool thing. Mm. And it's not like there's no, you know, we don't, I haven't seen a stormtrooper yet. I haven't seen Darth Vader. There's no Darth Vader. There's a couple, you know, TIE fighters that fly by. So very, it's all ground level stuff. There's very yeah. little of it that's in space. It takes place on just a couple planets, and it's like it's gritty, it's personal, lots of personal communication, lots of like interactions, and talking about like really heady stuff, and and how do we work and resist oppressive environments? And I think this it's the high watermark of Star Wars. Like I'm saying, all of the Star Wars, nice. like. That is, that's how good this is like, and yeah, it's, it's so powerful and I'm just like, so into it. So, yeah. and, or, you know, and I, or. I like, I could, I didn't finish the season on Boba Fett. I watched a little bit of the uh, second season, the Mandalorian. It was okay. Like I, I don't rewatch a lot of these movies. Um, so I'm, like I said, I'm like 60% a star Wars fan, but I'm an Andor fan. This yeah. is great. Great television. Yeah. I've heard good things about it. And, and it is the, the creative force behind rogue one, which I think was one of the better, if not the best, um, post original star yeah, Wars. Absolutely. Movies. So, um, yeah, cool. They went, li- they went a little heavy with the MacGuffins there, but it's okay. Yeah. You know, well, they had, they right. had, you know, it had to fit into the storyline into the yeah. big arc. So they, they snuck some MacGuffins in there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, All right, man. Hey, another great, 
time hanging out with another, you, Scott. Another great time. Yeah. Hanging out with you, Ollie. Uh, and we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.